our, in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Sunday morning, we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians together and the series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. We come to chapter 5 this morning. If you're here with us and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands and so you can read the Word of God and hear it as well. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift to the Lord from you uh, to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes, inspired by the Spirit of God, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. He writes to this church at Corinth. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife sleeping with her. And you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed as absent in body but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present him who has done so done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump and therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened? For Christ, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly wasn't talking about the sexually immoral people of this world or the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have spoken, written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what do I have to do with judging those who are outside, the unsaved world? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. God takes care of that. Concerning you, therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. It's a, a unique passage in your Bible, and it's an important one. And we thank you, Lord, for the, all the truths that are bound up in this passage and, and how it helps us to see the big picture, the way that you want us to see things. And so often we think of everything in life even our Christian life, just in the context of our self, Lord. We fight this, this self thing all the time, and we want to understand every aspect of our lives in the context of other people, how it affects other people, how it affects you, your work, your plan, Lord. 
And so we pray that you would give us a wonderful time in your word this morning, even in so exhortive of a passage as this, and that it would fashion us and form us, Lord, our thinking, our feeling, Lord, our doing, our saying. And Lord, you know the world that we live in, the things that we face as Christians trying to be obedient to you, not just from the opposition of the world, but now increasingly opposition from carnal Christians and Corinthian kind of Christians. And we need to hear your voice, Lord, and we need your strength. We need your perspective. And so we pray that you would give that to us this morning through your word, by your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. From this point forward in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul begins to deal with very, very specific items of uh, error that are going on in the church. Some of them are doctrinal. Some of them are uh, practice. A lot of things that are wrong in this church. I mean, we've got an amazing kind of affront to the holiness of God that is in this chapter that we've just read, but this is a church at Corinth. They're getting drunk before communion. I mean, what? And the false doctrine of, uh, you know, in terms of the resurrection and how they were treating that, there's a lot of problems there. But the problems weren't unique to them. It's probably rare to run into one church where all these things are wrong, but they were wrong at Corinth. And Paul corrected them, and the wonderful thing about it is that is, is that we face these very same things today that we have to deal with in being faithful to the Lord in the world today. And this correction is very helpful in keeping us on the straight and narrow as Christians and keeping us corrected in a way so that we can experience the fullness of the Christian life that God has for us, to experience the real Christianity, the authentic Christianity, the Holy Spirit Christianity, the Bible Christianity, the Book of Acts Christianity. The situation that's going on here that Paul addresses, he describes here in verse 1 of chapter 5, where there was an adult man in the church at Corinth, and he was involved sexually with his father's wife. So doubtless, he isn't engaged sexually with his own mother, but his mother has doubtless died, his father has remarried, and thus he's having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And the fact that Paul addresses the actions of the man, but he fails to address the woman, tells us that the man uh, professed himself to be a Christian and was attending the church at Corinth, but the woman evidently uh, didn't claim to be a Christian and didn't attend the church. And so Paul ignores her, like he says a little bit later in the chapter. What do we have to do with the world? We can't control what the world is or what it does or what people in the world do or they don't do. But we can control and should control and have a high standard of holiness among those that are Christians. And so this relationship that this man is having with his uh, stepmother, this was, is an ongoing relationship. It is a deliberate, it is willful rebellion against God's word and against God's standards. So this isn't like um, he 
uh, fell into sin <clears throat> one time, felt horrible about it, couldn't believe what he had done, asked God for forgiveness, repented of his sin. That's not the situation that's being dealt with here. That, that's how you handle sin properly and receive God's forgiveness, no matter how great the sin is. Um, but this man has dug in. He is deliberately, as a lifestyle, engaging in this sexual sin with this woman, and he doesn't really care what the Bible has to say or what God's standard is about this. He's going to do this, and that's just the way uh, that it is. Paul went on further to declare that this kind of sexual immorality wasn't even named among the Gentiles. And the point is, is that even the Gentile world, the unsaved world, would never condone the kind of uh, sexual immorality that was happening here. Even the world would look at this and say, here is a man who is sleeping with his stepmother. This is a... This is not just a violation sexually. This is a violation of relationship, a violation of trust. Even to the, it would be an absolute affront to a person that isn't even indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it would be an embarrassment to them. It would be a shame to the unsaved uh, world. And the fact of the matter is, is that this kind of sexual immorality is not only forbidden both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but was also forbidden by Roman law. So Roman law at the time, and I mean the Roman Empire was no, uh, you know, empire of pristine purity, but even they had laws against this kind of thing. And Paul tells us further that this situation was no secret, but it was widely known uh, within the church at Corinth, widely known within Corinth and beyond, and thus it was adversely affecting their reputation uh, within the city. And so everybody in the church was being harmed by this man's sexual immorality. And the fact of the matter is, is that for us as Christians, once somebody knows that we are a Christian in any environment that we are in, the Bible, that the, the, they begin to look at our lives and um, with a kind of a dis- discrimination, with a, um, a, you know, with a critical eye. The Bible teaches that each and every one of us as Christians that we are ambassadors for Christ. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is a person who represents someone or something greater than himself. When you have an ambassador from the United States or Germany or wherever it might be and they go to another country, that ambassador puts by the wayside all of his personal feelings, um, what he thinks, what he says, what he does, all of that is made subservient to his role as an ambassador. He realizes that in this particular scene that he goes into as an ambassador, that he no longer represents merely himself, but he's representing a nation. He's representing a king. He's representing a president. He's representing a kingdom. And so realizing that he, he is representing something far larger than himself, something that is even far more important than himself, he, makes all of his per, he takes all of his thinking, all of his doing, all of his saying, and anything that isn't consistent with properly representing that kingdom or that king, he puts it by the wayside. And that's what is true of every single one of us as Christians. We are ambassadors for Christ. 
And if we ever lose sight of the fact that as an ambassador of Christ, we lay aside anything that does not properly represent the king and the kingdom that we are a part of. Sometimes we lose sight of the fact that we are ambassadors as Christians, but the world never loses sight of that. And I remember before I got walking with the Lord, I had been around Christian things. I knew what a Christian ought to be. I wasn't walking with the Lord, and I wasn't committed to him at the time. But I think it's true, it wasn't true just of me, but it's true of the whole wide world. Once they find out that we're a Christian, they start to look at us with, with that discriminating kind of eye. They know that our lives should be different because we are Christians. They may not know exactly how our lives are to be different, but they know we should be uh, different. And people watch our lives as Christians, and when they watch our eyes, as the old saying goes, the Bible says that we are living epistles as Christians, and as the old saying goes, truly We are the only Bible that most people are ever going to read before they become a Christian. So they assume when they're looking at our lives that they're seeing what a Christian ought to be, that they're seeing a fair representation of what Christianity ought to be. And so here in Corinth is this man engaged in sexual immorality. The word goes out not only through the church but out into the community and beyond And everybody begins to come to the conclusion, and they're certainly free to do that, wrong to do that, but free to do that and and understandable. They conclude that, ah, that's what Christ died on the cross to do. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what Christians do. That's how they live. And so, though it was one person who was engaged in this sin because it wasn't being dealt with properly by the church, all of the rest of Corinth was coming to conclusions about everyone that attended the church. There's something sobering about being a Christian and realizing that we're a part of the body of Christ. We're a part of something bigger. What I do and I don't do as a Christian, that has an impact upon you as a Christian. And what you do and how you live has an impact upon me and my relationships in this community uh, as a Christian. Because people look and say, as they see whatever's going on in your life, they take that and they transfer it to me. And they assume that the same thing is true of me and vice versa related to my life to you. So when somebody's doing something crazy, unholy, like what this guy is doing... People are looking at the whole church and saying, that's what a Christian is, and that's what everyone who is going to that church is like. That's how they view sexuality. That's how they view the expression of of the sexual relationship. And that's exactly what was happening both then, and it happens uh, today as, as well. The response of the church is appalling to Paul, and he, and he speaks about the attitude of the church toward this sin in verse 2. He is, Paul is more upset and, and appalled by the reaction of the church to this man's sin than he is to this man's sin, and the sin is appalling. 
The response of the church to this man's lifestyle of sexual immorality is that they were puffed up in the situation. And that is, they were filled with pride concerning the situation. And say, how were they lifted up in pride? They were proud of their tolerance of sin as a congregation. Proud to be represented in Corinth as a church that was so open-minded that even active fornicators and adulterers could be member of, members of the church in good standing. And what there ought to have been in the church of Corinth, there wasn't like any hand-wringing, there wasn't any agony on their part where somebody speaks about the fact that, hey, this is going on in the church and this is going to become a reflection on all of us as Christians. And the leadership looks and goes, oh, no, this is a mess. We didn't wake up this morning hoping we could deal with something like this, but here it is. This is terrible, but it must be dealt with, and we've got to take care of this because this is going to do terrible damage to the cause of Christ. There was none of that kind of agonizing, no figuring out how to deal with it best. They were proud of the fact that they were a congregation that could have this kind of person engaging this kind of sin feel comfortable coming to their church. And, of course, the same thing is happening today as the church in general becomes more and more uh, Corinthian. I don't need to tell you that tolerance is it's the big word, it's the big buzzword, the politically correct word uh, of our age. And, it's the, and I, I understand it in the world when the world um, uh, deifies tolerance of everything as the mark of, you know, some, something high in a person's life. But when tolerance comes into the church from outside of, of the world, from the world into the church, and tolerance then becomes within the church what it is today in many, many quarters, it's the new badge of spirituality. And so rather than the old badge of spirituality being obedience to God's commandments, the new badge of spirituality is forget about all of that. The new badge is how tolerant of sin can you be. And all you have to do to experience it is just make a stand for God and for his word in your family, even in your Christian family, or at church against sin, a sin that's clearly defined as sin in the Bible, and quickly discover how, uh, how soon you are made out to be the bad guy. You're the one who's too strict. You're the one who's the legalist. You're the one who's the Pharisee. And I've, I, I mean, how many of you have run into a situation in your family? I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about Christians even, where you make a stand for what's right in a situation is clear as a bell in the Word of God. And the greatest flack that you get is not from the unsaved, but from Christian members of the family. How could you do this? Don't you know that blood is thicker than water? And don't you know there are more important things than obeying God's Word? This is your brother. This is your dad. This is your mother. And all of the pressure then to compromise the Word of God. So you make a stand. No, you, you can't come and visit 
and spend the night in our home sleeping in the same bed with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. That's not what we're about and that's not what we stand for. People say, how could you do that? I mean, this is blood. This is your own child. Well, how could you do something like that? No, we can't send our children over to your house, even though you are Christians, because of what they'd be exposed to, because of what you watch on television and the movies and the video games. We won't do that to our children. And, oh, boy, make that stand and verbalize that stand and see what flack you get. Or no... We will lovingly and measuredly discipline our children. And yes, we will resort to corporal punishment if we must in order to train our child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord despite the pressure you put on us to be something different and calling us too strict or calling us, you know, being uh, too fanatical related to the Bible. And to obey God and His commandments in our lives and in our relationships with others is never unloving and it is never wrong. It is the most loving thing that a person can do. John wrote in his first epistle, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. God didn't give a single command. There's not a single commandment that exists in this Bible that God gave to say, I want to create a burden for these people. Every commandment in His Word is born out of perfect love. And it is an expression of love by a loving Heavenly Father toward us. So when we obey God's Word, even when it is hard for us, and hard for other people by obeying His Word. It is never the wrong thing to do. It is never the unloving thing to do. It is always the most loving thing that we can do. And I'll tell you, that's something that just we've got to be reminded of over and over and over again because the definition of what is love has gone soft in the culture. Love is accommodating. Love is a weak thing within the culture. It won't do what's best for people. It won't make a stand. It won't tell them the truth when they desperately need to hear the truth. It won't warn them of the consequences of their actions and the path to destruction that people are putting themselves on. But God will always do that in His Word. And the, it is the person It is only the person who truly loves us that will step up and tell us the hard thing that we don't want to hear and put the relationship at risk because they love us so much that they can't silently sit on the sideline and watch us destroy our lives. But that's all turned upside down now. The person who's biblically loving has that kind of strength to their love and self-sacrifice to their love. Those are the bad guys today, even within Christianity, professing Christianity. And then this other thing has been enthroned as, uh, as the new definition of love. And it's all upside down. And it's all wrong. Every commandment 
of God's is an expression of his love for us and for others. And thus to disobey God's commandments in order to accommodate a relationship with another person is to be unloving toward them. And the greatest expression of pride in a person's life is when he thinks that he knows better than God on any subject and then proceeds to elevate his own ideas concerning that subject above God's truth. That's, that's the height of arrogance. I think Shakespeare said, man, poor man, so ignorant in that which he knows best. All you got to do is just live long enough to realize what we, the, the, the things that you and I, as we grow older, that we know are best in life, the older we get, the more we realize how little we know about any subject. And to think that I know more than God about anything is just arrogance and pride on my part. The fact of the matter is God's commands are intolerant, but they're wonderfully intolerant. And intolerance is a wonderful thing, by the way, when it's properly directed. And God's commandments are intolerant. They are intolerant of sin. They are intolerant of what will harm people, will destroy people, will damage people will ruin their lives or take them in wrong directions. It will crush their minds and crush their hearts and crush their lives and lead them to eternal destruction. God is, his truth is intolerant, but intolerance is a virtue when it is directed against what is wrong. And God is faithful to stand up against what is wrong, and be intolerant of sin when the whole world is going crazy around us under the mantra of of, uh, tolerance. To be tolerant of what we we shouldn't be tolerant of is one of the worst things we can do for another person, and it certainly isn't an act of love on our part. Their attitude, he tells them, should have been that they mourned over this situation in their midst. And the word that's used for mourn in the original language, it speaks of mourning over the death of a loved one. Should have broken their heart when they got the news that this was the sin. He's doing what? This is what, this is what he's choosing to do. Does he understand how this is going to reflect upon God and going to reflect upon everyone, the damage that it's going to do, not only to Christians, but the unsaved world. What in the world? A spiritual person would have heard this report and would have just said, Oh, no. Tell me it isn't true. Tell me it hasn't come to this place that someone can consider themselves a Christian, engage as a lifestyle in this sexual immorality, and then come to the church that we are the leaders of and not know that there's something wrong with that. And their reaction should have been one of mourning over the situation in the same way that someone would mourn the death of their father or their mother or their child or their husband or their wife. That should have been the reaction that they had. 
Paul says they also should have then excommunicated the man from the church. They should have lovingly investigated the facts. And if the facts were true, to sit down with a man and say, now listen, let's open up the Word of God. Let me tell you about what God says about what you're doing here and why what He says is wise and the loving thing related to your life. Look at, what, look at how the implications of your sin in all directions. And it's not just this sin, but any sin you can talk about that with. And to sit down and say, look at what God's Word says here related to the situation. Call on Him to repent of his sin, to ask God for forgiveness and to receive that forgiveness. And then if he refused to do so, then to separate him from the church. Don't allow him to attend, the apostle Paul said. Force him to choose between his sin or continuing to fellowship with God's uh, people. And again, I want to be very clear here related to chapter 5. This is not talking about a Christian who is struggling with sin. This man is not struggling with sin. This is lifestyle sin. This is willful. This is deliberate. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to go to church and consider myself to be a Christian, and I don't care what God says, and I don't care what anybody else says. That's the kind of situation that we're dealing with. So if you sit here this morning and say, I'm a Christian who struggles with sin, what do you say to me? Join the crowd. One day... When we go to heaven, there won't be one more minute that we will ever struggle with sin again. That will be gone. What a load will be lifted off of us in that instant moment in time that will be taken off of us. So we all struggle with sin. This man is not engaged in a struggle with sin. This is something that he has settled into deliberately and purposely. And so Paul instructs them them in verses 3 through 6 concerning what they should do. And he tells them essentially to get him out of the church, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And kind of what Paul is saying here is, if this is, if, is saying is this, if this man is having so much fun in his sin, then remove him entirely from your fellowship and let him not go out and get his fill of this sin and let the devil kick him around a little bit without enjoying the protection that we enjoy as Christians in assembling together in church like we are right now or in a home fellowship or whatever else it, it might be. There's a protection that we enjoy as Christians by being around other Christians. The Holy Spirit is here. There's an influence of the Holy Spirit that is around us. It affects what Satan is able to do or not able to do. And so here he says, remove this man from this protective environment. Let him go out there. Let the devil kick him up the street one side and then down the other. Make him bear the consequences of his sin alone. And Paul told, commanded him to do it, verse 4, with apostolic authority. And then he does something very significant. Paul tells them the reasons that they should do this, verses 4 through 6. And verse 4, number 1, for the sake of the reputation of the Lord Jesus himself. He said, you do it in the name, and the name represents the character, the nature, the reputation of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most amazing things to realize as a Christian is how vulnerable God has made himself, Jesus has made himself, 
in making us his disciples. Jesus has tied his reputation in the world to the character of his disciples. People come to conclusions about the very Son of God on the basis of the godly character that each and every one of us exhibits in our Christian walk on a daily basis. It's a great privilege to represent the Lord in this world, but it's a tremendous opportunity as well. And in representing Jesus in this world, Jesus himself calls us, each of us as Christians, to live a sexually pure life. Jesus taught of his kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, for you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. And that was true. The law of Moses, the old covenant. And then Jesus said to us as his disciples, he said, but I say unto you, he said, I'm going to raise the bar for Christians. I'm going to raise the bar above the Old Testament in this area of, of sexual purity in order to properly represent me and to represent my kingdom in a new covenant. He says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, in terms of sexual purity, Jesus calls upon us not only to live a outward life of conformity and holiness related to sp- sexual purity, but he calls on us to be equally pure inwardly as well. That's his call. That's his standard upon our lives. And so we see how far the church at Corinth is fallen below the desires of Jesus and how he wants his kingdom to be represented in the world. And Jesus wants the whole world to, to, to know that when he makes a disciple, he produces men and women who are sexually pure and they're serious about it. That's how he wants it represented. The church at Corinth, they've just lost, they're in an insane asylum spiritually speaking. This is the first century church. This is the earliest part of the church. If the sexual immorality was be, that was being practiced in the church of Corinth then filled the entire church and came to market and then moved from church to church to church to church throughout all of the churches that had been established then the whole wide world would have ended up looking at Christianity and said, that's a religion that you go get into and you become a sexually immoral person as a result. Complete contrast to what Jesus calls his people to. And if this whole mess that was going on in Corinth had spread in the way that it had the potential to spread if somebody like Paul didn't stand up and stand against it, Christianity would have not survived the first century. It would have been wiped out. People would have said, remember that cult thing that just started and everybody was just going to bed with whoever and nobody cared and everything? And wow, wasn't that a nutty old thing? Good riddance to that. And it would have been gone. 
But you know, the same thing is true of this age. And it's just as important today and the day that we've been called to represent Christ before the world is that if Christianity becomes known in the world today as a place that accommodates sexual, sexual immorality and encourages sexual immorality among its people rather than Christianity be something that calls upon people to live a sexually pure life, then we won't survive as a church worldwide in the generation that we've been called to represent the Lord. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to God. And so sexual purity in Corinth. Corinth was um, sexual immorality central in the ancient world. A thousand temple prostitutes... They're associated with the temple of Aphrodite. Men, women, children, whatever you wanted, it was all there to experience in the worship of Aphrodite. And if God could take in the environment, the sexually immoral environment of Corinth, and he could produce sexually pure people, what a testimony that would be to the power of God of the legitimacy of a spiritual birth, that the Holy Spirit is real. He does come into people's lives. He does give us a desire to live a different kind of life and then the power to live that different kind of life. And so here was this this sexual purity, such a strong witness to Corinth and this great distinctive of what Christianity was and so immoral of an environment was about to be destroyed because one man wanted to give into the lusts of his flesh. But the same thing is true today. I need to tell you the world that we live in is a very sexually immoral world. The accessibility to sexual immorality today, unbelievable, everywhere, crazy what it's become. And then when God takes a person and they put their faith in Christ and he saves them and he comes into their life by his Holy Spirit and he takes that person and then makes them a sexually pure person when they know and everybody else knows who and what they were before Christ, it's a powerful witness to the world of the fact that that's something real. That produces real change in a person's life. And concerning any sin, all you have to do is just wait. All sin has a hook. All sin becomes gravel in our mouth sooner or later. And then a person wants out. And when they want out, in Corinth, it was sexual immorality. That was the sin. And what God wanted them to see when they finally wanted out of that lifestyle in Corinth is he wanted them to see a sexually pure people to know that, hey, there is hope for me and what God did for them, I know he can do for me. He says not only is this to be done, the separation of the man out of the fellowship for the sake of Jesus' reputation in, in the world. And that's the highest reason of all. If there were no other reason, it would be sufficient. 
But he said it's to be done for the sake of the church itself, verse 6. He says a little leaven, leaven's a little lump. Leaven is yeast. Leaven is always spoken of negatively in the Bible, and it's used as a type of sin. You take a lump of dough, there it sits, and you just take a tiny little speck, get a tweezer out, little tiny speck of yeast or leaven, and you introduce it into that lump of dough, and it will quietly and powerfully work until it is infected the entire lump. It will leaven the entire lump. And Paul is saying what they recognize is that that's what sin does. You introduce sin willingly, knowingly. You condone it into a local church, and you're going to turn around, and you're going to find that whole church is filled with sin. You can't just say we're going to, that's out of sight, out of mind. We hope this guy goes away. We hope he changes. No, the fact that he's doing what he's doing, if you allow that to continue, that is a reflection then upon you, your attitude towards sin. People in the congregation are going to look and they're going to consider what he's doing and they're going to figure, well, he's sexually immoral person. And nobody seems to care about it. The leaders don't seem to care about it. The church doesn't seem to care about it. So apparently God doesn't care about it. So he won't care if I become a sexually immoral person, which is a great temptation in Corinth and a great temptation today related to any sin. And pretty soon the whole congregation is dominated by sin rather than dominated by holiness. So you lower the Bible standard for one person, that's to lower it for everyone. And then, as I said, many people will begin to think that, well, if he can do it and it's okay, then I can do it and it's okay, because obviously it must not be important to God. One of the things about church discipline I think it's a great way to think of it, is church discipline is the immune system of the body of Christ in a local church. You have a physical body that does not have an immune system or does not have an immune system that functions, that body's going to die. That's just the way that it is. The immune system has the ability to recognize what is a threat to the survival of the body, to attack that, and then to remove it. And that's why a body enjoys health. It wouldn't enjoy health without an immune system. Church discipline is the immune system of a local church where the leaders can look and say, that is a threat to the future existence of this church. That's a threat to the health of this church. So we're going to step in, and if the person will not repent of that sin, then we will then remove them from being a part of the body because if they're allowed to continue, they will ultimately destroy the health and, and even the survival of the local church, of that little body of, of Christ. And so church discipline does that, and church discipline is the means by which a church can remove a person whose sinful behavior, rebellion against God, constitutes a threat to the health and the survival uh, of the church. And if church discipline is not practiced in those kind of cases, the church will ultimately grow weak, it will die, 
And, and it may go on. There may still be people coming into the doors and they still got the band going and everything like that. But in terms of being alive and making a difference for God in the world, all of that is over. The church at Corinth had become very, very man-centered rather than God-centered. And because they were so man-centered rather than God-centered, when they came to church, the service was all about them. And they forgot that God attends our church services as well. God is the guest of honor here this morning. He's present. He's present all of the time in the whole wide world all at once. But when his people assemble together, he is present in a special way. And when we come together to worship the Lord, it's not about my rights or what I want or me, I, me, my, all of those kind of things. We come together because even as we have just sung and even as you, by the Spirit of God, have responded to it, we have a great God and we have a great King. And because He's a great God and He's a great King and He has been great to us, we have a need to worship Him and to praise Him. And there needs to be that recognition and there's the desire before we come out, always before we come out to begin the service here as we're praying and back with the worship team and all of us, we pray not only that you would be blessed and we pray for that, but we pray that God would be blessed by the service and that it would bless his great heart. And they'd forgotten that the church service was was one in which God was to, was present and he has a right to enjoy the service. But if the people that make up the church, if we become so filled with willful rebellion and deliberate sin, then he can't enjoy the service. There is a tipping point that happened related to the children of Israel in, in the Old uh, Testament they, and where they were going to temple and they were offering the sacrifices and they were doing all of these religious kind of things, but they were living a life that was completely rebellious against God and idolatry. All of this stuff was going on in their private life. And then they would, but they would come together with this dual life going on, a lifestyle of sin. That's what they were really doing. But they'd pay lip service to God by going to the temple or going to the, the church service. And as they would come to the church service, there came a point where it, it hit a tipping point where it became the sin within the congregation became so great that God, we're told in the book of Ezekiel, he took his spirit and lifted it off of the temple and he left. The Spirit of God left the temple in the Old Testament, went across the brook Kidron over the Mount of Olives and departed from Jerusalem and any participation in the worship 
of God's people. Because he looked at it and all he could see was the sin in the congregation. Where it had reached a point now where it so dominated the lives of those that were in it. He couldn't come in and say, he could, all he could come in and say to the church service is, all I want to do is judge what I see here. All I want to do is chasten it. All I want to do is rebuke it. There's nothing for me to bless. There is no, nothing of praise or worship that is being offered to me out of a clean heart. There are no praises that I can inhabit. There's nothing here for me. People don't care about my participation. They don't care about my holiness. They don't care about meeting with me. The whole thing is a show. And so he left. He departed from the temple. And he will do that to a local church if it doesn't have a concern for holiness and does not have a concern that this service not only be a blessing to us, but also and supremely a blessing to him. He will leave that church and he will go someplace else. And then all there is is the inevitable wilting and dying of that church as it begins to dawn on people one person at a time that God isn't in that place anymore. And so the importance of recognizing that this is for the Lord and He wants to bless, He wants to participate, He wants to meet our needs, He wants to inhabit our praises. But there has to be holiness in our life and a concern for holiness and not living in deliberate rebellion to His Word that allows Him to be comfortable in a church service and in a church and to abide and to bless in the way that He wants to. I think this is the great mistake that many leaders in churches are making today by de-emphasizing sin and holiness in order to grow the church bigger. You may grow it bigger, but if you de-emphasize sin and you de-emphasize holiness, you will drive God out. And you will end up maybe with a big church for a time, but God will be gone. He will not participate in it. It is a dead end to operate in that way. I don't know about you, but I suspect you're very much like me. I'm around the world all week long. I've had enough of the world by the time I come to church. I've had enough of the world by the time I come to church. I've about had enough of the world, period. I'm so eager for heaven. You, you, I can taste it. I've got my crown in my hand. I'm ready to throw it down on the glassy sea. So by the time we come to church, we're not looking for world light. We need a holy place. We need the church to be a holy place. We need it to be a holy environment. We need it to be something that's very, very different from the world, a sanctuary. I need a sanctuary in this world to come to that is completely different from the world. And the church is supposed to be that, not to come into church and I come into church and now I'm more tempted to sin by the lifestyle of the Christians that are attending the church than any friends that I have in the world. Who needs that aggravation? And it's a very, very weak church. 
And it's a very, very weak leadership that will not stand up to the selfishness of this kind of a person in the midst of a church or if they number 200 within a church and say, you will not, we will not, over our dead body, we will not let you take this from God and we will not allow you to take this from being a sanctuary from God's people when we so desperately need such a sanctuary in an hour like this. God attends church too, and he has a right to assemble with an obedient people and a holy people. And then finally, he says that they should put the man out for the sake of the man himself. He said, deliver, verse 5. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Let him go get his fill of sin until he's sick of it. Let him go out there and fornicate himself to death. Let him go out and drink himself to death. Let him go out and drug himself to death. Whatever the sin is, let him go out there. And if that sin is so great, let him go out and partake of all of that and, 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 Get his fill of it until he comes to a point in his life and it will happen in a person who's truly been born again that they will then one day wake up and look longingly at the God and the holiness of the God that they once rejected, look longingly at the holiness of the church that they once walked away from and tried to defile and will come back to that church and be an influence for it, for holiness, for the rest of their lives. And God said, let him go out there and get his fill. He did it with the children of Israel in the Old Testament. They wanted idolatry. They had idolatry like crazy. They were worshiping every kind of idol that the world had. God said, i got a cure for that for you. It's called Babylon. Babylon is the center of the idolatrous world. And I'm going to put you there for 70 years until you have idols coming out of your nose and then you see the quality of life that comes out from that and then see if it isn't infinitely inferior to the life that I had for you but that you no longer appreciated and you were willing to throw away for all of this dumb stuff. And sure enough, they went into captivity to the Babylon and the Jews, by the time those 70 years ended, when they came back into the land, they were happy for the temple to be a holy place. They were happy to obey God's word. All of the things that they handled so casually and rejected and rebelled against now became the treasure of their life. And to their credit, they never ever gave place to idolatry in their history ever again, even to this current age. It cured them of their idolatry. And he's saying the same thing to this guy. Get them out there. Let them find out firsthand that sin isn't so great until he longs for church to be the holy place and the beautiful godlike place that it is. And I'll tell you, it worked in this man's life because we turn into 2 Corinthians and we know that ultimately this man did repent of his sin. He longed to be restored back into the church that he was excommunicated from and to be a part of Christian fellowship. And Paul told them, all right, in this condition, forgive him, comfort him, and love him. And I'll tell you, I ask, I ask you, who loved this man? Really, really, truly loved this man? Was it the so-called 
tolerant Christians and leaders in the church at Corinth who were willing to allow him to put himself on a path that was leading to destruction, but nobody wanted to say anything because nobody wanted to hurt the feelings or nobody wanted to risk the relationship? Or was it Paul and people like Paul who stood up and told this man the thing that he needed to hear, put the relationship at risk, but was going to tell him what he needed to hear, When nobody else would tell him what he needed to hear, the hard thing to do, but it was the loving thing to do. And I'll guarantee you, when that man came back into Corinth and into that church, his respect for those that were willing to allow him to go onto a path unhindered that would end up in a Christless eternity, perhaps for him, as opposed to the people that stood up and did the right thing, but he hated them for days and he hated them for weeks and he hated them for years. But one day he came to his senses like the prodigal son and he came back and now he would understand those were the people who truly loved me and these people didn't love me at all. They only loved themselves. And it was out of self-love that they wouldn't stand up to me and tell me the things that I needed to know. And it worked. And it takes real love. It takes God's love to do the right thing in that kind of a situation, to do the hard thing. And I guarantee you that man respected those later who did the hard thing but did the right thing and rather than those who were so weak in his life. And Paul closes this by verses 7 and 8, call, telling us that we need to make a stand for purity in our lives, all kinds of purity, that Jesus is the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that Jesus doesn't just save us or redeem us from the bondage of Egypt, as the children of Israel were saved from the bondage of Egypt, he saves us from the greater bondage of sin. But he doesn't just save us from the penalty of our sin. He saves us from the power of our sin. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, you would remove leaven again, a type of sin the Jews did under the Old Covenant. And it was a symbolism of the fact God has not only saved us out of the bondage of Egypt, but he has saved us to live a pure life. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again on the day, not only to deliver us from the bondage of sin, but all to deliver us to the privilege of living a holy life. And so Paul says, live that holy life. Christianity isn't just about getting saved but it's, and, and forgiven, but it's about living a holy life once we are Christians. And he tells us in verses 10 through 13 how we're to treat a person who's been excommunicated from the church. In other words, the church has excommunicated them, but that person was my friend or that person is a relative or that person is a neighbor. Now, how am I as a Christian supposed to respond to them in a relationship? And Paul said concerning anyone who's a brother, verse 11, now talking about the unsaved world, that's God's business, that individually we're to honor the actions of the church and that our contact with that person is to be redemptive, we're to be an influence in their life, to call them to repent. We're not just to go out to lunch with them or chit-chat with them or pretend that the life that they're living isn't a serious issue, what they're doing to the reputation of Christ, what they're doing to his name, what they're doing to their own life. 
But every contact with them is to be a contact that influences them toward repentance. And so you just don't go out to eat and pretend that this excommunication hasn't occurred. We don't just go out and talk like there isn't something wrong in their life and ignore that. It's a big deal what a person like this has done, and he needs to experience the consequences of it, not only on a church level but also on an individual level. And so he's separated from the blessings of Christian fellowship, not just at the church, but Christians beyond. Not not all Christians. There's exceptions to it. If a wife is married to a man and she's excommunicated, she maintains that relationship. But the other relationships in general, that's to be the influence. Nothing to do with them except to be an influence toward their repentance. So church discipline, it's never easy. It's never popular. It's hard for a church to do. And when a church does that, it is it also is to involve the cooperation, the obedience of, of the individual Christians that make up the church as well and they're to honor it. The Christian life can include very, very difficult times where we not only have to resist the influence of the world in order to remain faithful to God's commandments, but to resist the influence of carnal Christians. I want to say again this morning, don't you be bullied or don't you be intimidated by those that want to redefine love as something that can be expressed independent of God's commandments. The most loving thing that you and I can ever do in a relationship with another person is to obey what God's Word has told us to do and to be in that relationship. And sometimes that will strain the relationship. It will break the relationship. And sometimes for a long period of time, and in some cases, even permanently. But you're able to live with the fact that you have done the single most loving thing that you could do for that person. And now it's up to God to take your obedience and make much of it and cause that person to see the love that's being expressed in your obedience to God's Word and your relationship with them. Obey God, not your family, not your friends, not the Corinthian church, not other Christians, not the world. Obey God's Word in your relationships with other people. That is the supreme expression of obedience or expression of love toward another person. Not this weak, flimsy, disastrous thing that is called love all around us today. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord, your word says that faithful are the wounds of a friend. And we believe it. And we thank you for the strength of this passage here today. And we just acknowledge the necessity of it in the hour in which we live.
And, Lord, our minds are being messed with, our spirits are being messed with, our hearts are being messed with. There's a smaller and smaller and smaller group of people, even among your people, that view love as being obedient to your word in a circumstance, even when it is very, very hard to do so. And yet it's the right thing, Lord, and I pray that in this time in your word today that you would just reinforce that in our hearts. And we just acknowledge the fact that the most powerful thing that we can give you to use in another person's life is our obedience to your word. And so we pray that you remind us of that. And any compromise in our hearts tonight where we've compromised for mother or father or son or daughter or husband or wife or friend, Lord, any compromise that we've allowed into our lives, we just reject it, convict us of it, Lord, where it exists. We repent of that and we return to just simply obeying your word with the confidence that that's the best thing we can ever do for the people we love as we look at it in the light of this world and the world to come. And we pray these things, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.